Would you please pray with me? Father, as I attempt to teach your word to your people, I ask that you would lead me into all truth. Help me to explain the complicated clearly and the simple honestly. Convict all of us to follow Christ's example and be faithful to fulfill any and all promises. May we not be quick to make promises that we cannot keep. Amen. If you've spent any reasonable amount of time around small children, you have probably noticed they have this tendency to not always tell the truth. Ask a five-year-old, did you take that candy that I left on the counter? And they'll say, mm-mm. Then what is that in your mouth? I don't know. Ask the teenager, did you wash the dishes like I told you to do before I left to go to work? And they'll say something like, you wanted me to wash the dishes today? Oh, yeah, that's right. But I have so much homework now. You notice as they get older, they get a little bit more clever and creative. But even in the courtroom, you can uh, 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 see the adult who has placed his or her hand on the Bible and has sworn to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And they will sometimes make a statement that totally contradicts everything else uh, they previously stated. And everybody in the courtroom knows they're not telling the truth. But when called on it, they may actually say something like, oh, I misspoke, and then expect you to move on. Thank God for scripture. Because the Bible tells us, it gives us a heads up as to what the problem actually is. In Psalm chapter 58, it says, the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. Unless we think the wicked doesn't include us, oh, that's them over there, Romans chapter 3 says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. They use their tongues to deceive. And from these two texts, Psalm chapter 58 and Romans chapter 3, verses 10 uh, to, to, to 13, we learn that, number one, the wicked are estranged from the womb, and none of us are righteous. But these uh, passages also point to a specific brand of evil, a certain type of wickedness, lying and deception. One of the first wrongs we're motivated to commit from the womb is false and deceitful communication. If you haven't turned there yet, please meet me in Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 33. Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 33, page 810 in your pew Bibles. In this text, not only does Jesus deal 
with the Jewish leaders and the people who were sometimes deceptive, even when taking or swearing an oath, he also addresses all of us who call ourselves followers of Christ. He, he tells us to, to not swear or take an oath rashly. That's the key. But to always be truthful every time you speak. I'll be reading Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 to 37. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Point number one, the misuse of oaths. The misuse of oaths. As we have been working our way through Jesus' sermon on the mountainside in Matthew chapter 5, we have seen how Jesus would state one of the commandments or laws, and then press beyond the people's interpretation of that law to the righteousness that God intends. In verses 21 to 26, we saw that Jesus looked beyond the murder uh, that people uh, thought about, and he said, I want you to see the anger that is behind it. And it's, he's saying that if you have the opportunity that nobody would know and you can do this and get away with it, your anger could cause you to commit murder. And then in verses 27 to 32, he explores lust, which is spiritually equal to adultery. And then he speaks on divorce. He spoke on divorce and the exception clause that came about because of the lust that conceives physical adultery or sexual immorality. Now in verses 33 to 37, Jesus' teaching on oath exposes yet another misunderstanding the people had concerning another one of God's commands, specifically the ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. So when Jesus told the masses in our text, verse 33, again you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn, he didn't repeat the exact words we find in the Old Testament, but he summed up several texts that spoke on swearing falsely. In Numbers chapter 30, for instance, in verses 1 and 2, Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes of the people of Israel, saying, This is what the Lord has commanded. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Then again in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 21 to 23, Moses once more said, If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what has passed your lips, for you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. There are a few other places we can find this prohibition against not 
uh, uh, keeping vows and swearing falsely, but they basically carry the same thought. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. In any case, when Jesus makes a statement towards the masses, he used both the negative, you shall not swear falsely, and the positive, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Here's what you shouldn't do, and here's what you should do. And to make sure we are all on the same page this morning, let me define what an oath actually is. Biblically, according to Easton's Dictionary of the Bible, an oath is defined as a solemn appeal to God permitted on fitting occasions in various forms and taking, taken in different ways. A solemn appeal to God permitted on fitting occasions in various forms and taken in different ways. So let's see uh, uh, real quick if Easton's uh, understanding of what a vow is, is what they say it is. Let's see if it's true. First they said an oath is a solemn appeal to God permitted on fitting occasions. And we actually do find this in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 13. There it says, it is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. So it is permit, permitted on fitting occasions. Secondly, they stated oaths are found in various forms, and this is also true. One of the places we see this is in uh, Ruth chapter 1, and some of you are very familiar with this. When Naomi was about to leave her daughter-in-law, Ruth, and go back to her covenant people, Ruth told her, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. To say, may the Lord do so to me, and more also, is another form of an acceptable vow that was sworn before God. And finally, Easton's Dictionary said oaths are taken in different ways. An example of this can be found in Genesis chapter 24. As Abraham is about to send his servant off to find his son Isaac a wife, Abraham tells his servant, put your hand under my thigh that I may make you swear by the Lord the God of heaven and God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. Having someone place their hand under your thigh was certainly a different way of swearing an oath. So Easton's Dictionary of an Oath accurately defines for us what an oath is, a solemn appeal to God permitted on fitting occasions in various forms and taken in different ways. This is what God himself established throughout the Old Testament. He taught the Israelites to guarantee their truthfulness by swearing with God as their witness. And this was not to be a, a, a mindless promise or a, a foolish guarantee, but a serious and sincere declaration that you will keep your promise or you are speaking the truth about something. 
Anytime anyone swore to God or, or took an oath, but it wasn't taken seriously or sincerely, but flippantly and without thinking, that was considered taking God's name in vain, and the violator would be deemed guilty before God. And this is another way that people broke the third commandment, which says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And also in Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 12, God declares, you shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Now, by the time we get to Jesus's day, the Jewish leaders had created a sanctimonious justification for lying without repercussion. A sanctimonious justification for lying without repercussion. So Jesus needed to address these people because they were super quick to swear oaths, both valid and invalid. That's right, valid and invalid oaths. In Judaism, oaths played a, a large part of their day-to-day -day life. The Mishnah, which is the first major written collection of the Jewish oral tradition, goes so far as to divide their oaths into classes. It gives examples of valid oaths and invalid oaths. This is why Jesus said what he said in Matthew chapter 23, uh, verses 16 to, to 22. You can turn there if you desire, but it basically says, or it says, uh, woe to you blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he, was, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and, er and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. In the Pharisee's mind, if, if someone swore by the temple or by the altar or by heaven, his oath was not considered binding. But if he swore by the gold of the temple, then he could not break his word without being subject to the penalties of the Jewish law. So what Jesus does is make it clear that swearing by any of these things is equivalent to swearing by all of these things, and God will still hold you accountable. Their swearing sounded so convincing, so convincing, but they knew how to get around breaking Jewish law. And some of you are old enough, old enough to remember this, but it was like when we were small children and we promised to do something, but when we said it, we had our fingers crossed and behind our backs. Some of you remember that, right? But when it was time to fulfill that promise, we would say, uh-uh, I have my fingers crossed. Some of you do remember that. But, but, but as we got older, we make way too much of ourselves when we make these superficial vows even when we don't use God's name in vain. Just like the Pharisees, they sound so powerful, but they're empty. Some will say things like, I swear on my mother's grave. What does that even mean? 
It sounds so serious, though. But some will also say, I swear on my life. Really? So that, does that mean if you are lying, you're going to drop dead? What, what are you saying when you, I swear on my life? What, you don't have that kind of power. But here's what happens. When your cup of iniquity is full and God says it's over, then it's over. Only God has that type of power. Many people who grew up in a Christian home cringe whenever we hear someone say, I swear to God. Because we, 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 there's even this, this urge to cover your ears because you knew that's something you just did not throw out there. Right? There would be swift correction and there may be some chastening behind that. It's just something you wouldn't just throw out there because God is the only one from Scripture who is allowed to make oaths on a regular basis basis. Why? Because heaven is his throne. The earth is his footstool. He's the great king of Jerusalem and he alone has the power to make all of your hairs black or white or invisible. That's up to God. So when, 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 whenever someone says, I swear to God, Jesus said it is equivalent to swearing by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. That means you are vowing before the great king of the universe that you are telling the truth or will keep your word no matter what. Side note, we had a lot of marriages last year, and I want you to think about your vows for better or worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health. You vowed before God. I'm just saying. Remember that. Keep that in mind. Because it should produce a certain level of fear and all, whenever an oath is taken. However, due to this fear, there has arisen a certain, there has arisen a certain hesitation among those who identify as God-fearing people when it comes to taking, taking an oath. Some believe an oath is never to be taken, which brings us to my second point, the misunderstanding of oaths, the misunderstanding of oaths. The Essenes were a Jewish sect that emerged in the second century BC. And they, they established this community of people at Qumran. And they, they emphasized ritual purity. They lived celibate lives, copied books of the Jewish scriptures, and wrote commentaries on the books of the prophets. They feared the Lord and believed it was a grievous sin against God to make an oath. According to first century Jewish historian uh, Josephus, any word of theirs has more force than an oath. Swearing oaths, they avoided, regarding it worse than perjury. They said, they said, one who is not believed without an appeal to God stands condemned already. Sounds good. But then Josephus adds, to join them, you had to swear tremendous oaths. How ironic. On the one hand, they, they avoided oaths because they believed if your word can't be trusted at face value, you stand condemned already. But on the other hand, to enter such a trusted state, you had to swear tremendous oaths before God as witness to your character and commitment to the truth. This last part is similar to what was developed in the Western judicial system. When you placed your hand on the Bible and swore an oath before God to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God, it was not only an oath concerning the truth, 
uh, to a, a specific uh, facts of the case, but it, was all, it also served as witness to your character and commitment to speak truthfully because of a certain fear of the Lord. The thought was, you are about to make a statement that the one who sits on the throne in heaven is going to hold you accountable for. The fear of God was so prevalent at one time uh, around the, that around the mid-1800s, according to Bouvier's Law Dictionary notes, one was expected to kiss the Bible after swearing the oath. But as to be expected, some objected, like the Quakers, for instance. Since their coming to America in the mid-1600s, they refused to take an oath under any circumstance. They said, we will not be making any oaths, but will let our yes be yes and our no be no, so that we may not fall under condemnation. And they pointed to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, then again in chapter 23, and also what the James says in chapter uh, 5 and verse 12. James wrote, but above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. And that seems pretty clear, right? No. Not the way they understood it, because the difference, the difference between what the Quakers objected to and what Jesus and James were addressing are not quite the same thing. Both Jesus and James are addressing the one-on-one -on -one relational aspect of oath-keeping. And as I previously stated, some of the people in those days used clever yet deceitful ways to avoid speaking the truth to their neighbors, even swearing. So when Jesus and James said, do not take an oath or swear, they're just warning the people of God to always speak truthfully to everybody each and every day. Now, 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 by your faces, some of you seem to disagree with me. I'm just throwing it out there. Some of you say, oh, I don't know about that, Pastor Mike, right? So for you, I have four quick reasons why I don't believe James or Jesus were totally prohibiting taking oaths. So if I go a little bit too long, it's your fault. <laughs> Reason number one, it's not prohibited, I believe, is because God took oaths. God took oaths. Why would Jesus, the son, Prohibit something God the Father did. In Genesis 22, God told Abraham, by myself I have sworn, I surely bless you. Then in Psalm chapter 95 and verse 11, when speaking of that faithless generation in the wilderness, God said, therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Once more in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 17, the writer says, So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. And I like that. Because what the writer is saying, to show more convincingly to us the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, God made an oath. He guaranteed it with an oath. So the promises you read for you, you can know they're not going to change. God is unchanging in his character, and he's unchanging in his word. For those of you who are still doubting and saying, well, that's God. Of course God can do that. See, I know what you're thinking. I, I, I've been there. I know what you're thinking, right? 
If, if, if that's what you believe, the verse before it includes us. Hebrews 6.16, it says, for people swear by something greater than themselves. For people swear, that's us, by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. That should be enough right there to prove an oath is a solemn appeal to God that is permitted on fitting occasions in various forms and taken in different ways. I should be able to end the sermon right here, but I won't. Here's the second reason I don't believe scripture totally prohibits the taking of oaths. In the Bible, many God-fearing people are recorded making oaths. The apostle Paul made oaths by calling God as his witness in Romans chapter 1 and verse 9. He says, for God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers. In other words, for those who are new to the church and don't know me that well, I, the apostle Paul, uh, am proving that I am constantly praying for you because I'm calling God as my witness that I do this. That's powerful. For anybody who fears God to say, you can believe this, and I'm calling God as my witness. Then in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 23, he wrote, but I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. In context, he's telling them that for those of you who think I just changed my mind on a whim about visiting you, I call God as my witness. You can be sure I'm not lying. Instead of showing up to rebuke you to your face, I'm going to show you mercy. God knows. The third reason I don't believe scripture totally prohibits the taking of oaths is the apostle Paul put other believers under an oath. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 27, Paul told the church in Thessalonica, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. How could the apostle Paul, appointed personally by Christ, go directly against the words of Christ, unless he's not. This is not a flippant, not a flippant use of having them swear an oath. Paul means what he says and is stressing the urgency of having this letter read to the Thessalonians. And the fourth reason I don't believe scripture totally prohibits the taking of oath is throughout the Bible. There would be times when an oath was deemed necessary before God's people or before a group of unbelievers. First, we have Joshua swearing an oath before the people of Israel. After the Israelites conquered Jericho, Joshua chapter 6 and verse, verses 26 to 27 says, Joshua laid an oath on them at that time saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city Jericho. At the course of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the course of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. End quote. No rebuke for making an oath, because the oath was deemed necessary before the people of God. Then there's the Apostle Paul who would have had to swear an oath when called to testify before the chief priests 
and court of the Sanhedrin at the end of Acts 22 and into chapter 23. No rebuke was given there either because the oath was deemed necessary before the unbelievers. In fact, we see just the opposite. Instead of being rebuked by God for taking an oath, he's encouraged by Christ. In Acts chapter 23, verse 11, it says, The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Finally, there's Jesus himself. Truly man, truly God. Less than 12 hours before he was to be crucified, Jesus spoke under an oath and fulfilled scripture to establish his credentials as the Messiah. In Matthew chapter 26, verses, 30, verses 63 and 64, it says, the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. That's equivalent to saying, I want you to swear by the living God. If you are the Christ, the son of God. And unlike the Anabaptists or the Quakers or some religious people even today, Jesus testified. He answered. He said, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Even though I presented what I believe to be stunning evidence that it is perfectly biblical for Christians to take oaths in certain <laughs> settings, some of you may still conclude the Quakers are right. We shouldn't be swearing oaths in court or anywhere. What more can I say? Except that if I am called on to testify and take an oath in a formal public setting, I can be assured from the pure word of God as a whole that I am following the footsteps of many godly, even biblical men who took an oath to assure others in a formal setting that they were speaking the truth. And this brings us to my final point, my final point, the mission of oaths, the mission of oaths. When it comes to taking an oath in a judicial or any official setting to prove to those who don't know us as Christians that we are those of the truth, commanded to speak the truth, and have been born again by him who is the way, the life, and the truth, I agree with both Calvin and Luther. Both of them harmonize the testimony of scripture by distinguishing between public and private speech. In private, they said disciples should tell the truth so completely that the need for oaths disappears. But in a public or an official setting, oaths are allowed. That's the difference. If you look at one part of scripture without harmonizing it with the rest of scripture, you will be confused. You will say the Bible's full of con contradictions. I just don't understand it. But when you understand this is the setting where oaths are allowed, and this is the setting where they are not allowed, but let your yes be yes and your no be no. People who know you, people you see every day, people that, 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 that have no business really question, questioning you, even you know any unbeliever who comes is full of doubt, just let your yes be yes and your no be no. That's all. 
But if you're in a court of law and the people don't know you, and this is one way that they have of establishing the truth, you will not be condemned to hell if they ask you to put your hands on the Bible and swear to tell the truth. That's a totally different setting. So it is okay as we see that God himself established this in the Old Testament under a new economy and before a people who just, one instance was they just conquered a land, just came out of Egypt. We're not going to be like those people. You are my people. And here's what we're going to do. If anybody rebuilds this city, it's going to cost them the life of their firstborn and their lastborn and he put them under oath, don't do it. Here's what we do. So we've seen that for the most part, the mission of oaths is to establish confidence in others who don't know that the truth is about to come forth out of my mouth. Or I'm speaking the truth to something that I have seen and you can believe it. That's the, that's the purpose, right? It's, it's an unpacking of the ninth commandment. And once again, the ninth commandment says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. According to the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the ninth commandment requires the maintaining and promoting of truth between man and man. Therefore, only not only are we not to bear false witness against our neighbor, but we're not to bear false witness to our neighbor. For the Christian, since we are called to grow up in every way into Christ, who is the head, we need to always speak the truth in love. Ephesians 4.15. And what that means is it doesn't only matter that you speak the truth, but it's how you say it. It's how you say it. Now, I know you're saying, well, the truth is the truth is the truth. But we have to be careful now because we can come off as these high and haughty people, and I never make a mistake, and I never sin. And now, even though you've spoken the truth, because we're sinners, that person puts up a wall, and you can't tell them anything else. So we speak the truth in love. God speaks the truth to us in love and gives us a chance to turn, to repent, and we follow suit. This is what we see in verse 37 of Matthew chapter 5, right? In verse 37, we see that he has established this thing where he is the head and we are the body. We belong to him. So Jesus, what he does from verses 34 to 36 and speaking of these things outside of us, is he begins talking about us and our person, even mentioning our hairs, the smallest parts of our physical body, the, our hairs, right? And he's, he, he spoke about the heaven, the earth, and Jerusalem, and now he's saying, not only do I own and have authority over the heaven or heaven, the earth, and Jerusalem, but I own and have authority over you, down to your head, down to your head, the hairs on your head, right? And God owns it all. We know that, but sometimes we don't act like it. He's in control of everything. We do not have that type of authority or dominion, but nevertheless, sometimes we'll make a thoughtless promise that we cannot fulfill and we'll fail miserably, miserably, miserably. Before giving our word in anything, we need to take some time and ask ourselves, can I keep my promise? 
Can I fulfill this thing that I'm saying right now? We must consider it. What's about to come, up, come out of our mouth? And then let our yes be yes and our no be no. Anything more than this, the scripture says, comes from evil. I don't know about you. When I meet, when I meet someone and we, you know, we seem to kick it off and we, we, we seem to have a lot of things in common, but if we plan something, you know, like we're going to hang out, we're going to go somewhere, we're going to meet, but then either they don't show up or they're ex extremely late, to me that sends off a flag. A red flag that, that they couldn't at least call. And it, it, it sets up a standard that says, wait a minute, if they cannot keep something as simple as a, a promise to meet at a certain time, what else will they fail in? That's just me. Maybe that's not you. But it's, it's, it's like, are they, is this going to be them? And of course, you don't end everything right then. The relationship may be a great relationship, but you go forward and you give them a chance to say or show that that was a one off. That was a one-off. I should have called, my phone died, or whatever, right? But that last part that Jesus says is, is anything more than this comes from evil. Some of you have translations, uh, or you've grown up uh, with a translation that says from the evil one. And some expositors prefer that translation, right? But the problem is it's not included in the most reliable uh, manuscripts. While it is true, that all evil in our world is originally from the devil. All evil committed by us is not because of the devil. If you lie about anything, you can't turn around and say, the devil made me do it. You know, it was you. And I don't know about you once more, but I have done evil and I have lied. I also have had evil done to me and I have been lied to. And I'll say right now, there are not more, many more devious things you can do to ruin a relationship than lie. Why is that? Because it destroys trust, the foundation of any relationship, trust. So Jesus comes and he says, I'm not just the way and the life, but I'm the truth. You can trust me. And that's in that context when he says, I'm going away to prepare a place for you so that where I am, you may be also. They gave up everything. But I'm, what do we do? Follow me. I give life. But I am the truth. Not just do I tell the truth, but that's who I am, my makeup. I says, okay, it's going to be all right. And so in our relationships, we want to establish that truth. We want somebody to, to say, yes, that person, when they tell you something, you can believe it. You can believe it. Not speaking the truth crumbles relationships. Many firm foundations have been split and broken because of bearing false witness, not, not telling the truth. Right? One moment you trust someone with everything, then one life-changing lie can take all that away. So what's the remedy? Obtaining a biblical fear of God. Obtaining a biblical fear of God. Having a biblical fear of God is healthy and necessary, and it helps to keep the truth always before you. This is the character of born-again believers, because we have been given the spirit of God, which is the spirit of truth. This gives us an eternal desire to keep our word. We're not perfect, but 
but there's this desire. And there's this conviction when we don't, when we fail. It's like, oh! Mm. And we try to make up for what we have done. And here's how, here's how it works. You blow it miserably. You do everything in your power to regain that person's trust. How do you do that? Obtaining a biblical fear of God, being consistent in speaking the truth. And over time, you build up a trust again. We're just like that. It's, it's amazing. You have a few, I won't deny that, who hold on to this thing that you've done to them 20 years ago. But most people, some of us kick ourselves because we're so forgiving. And we let this person back into that space. But there's something that God has put in his children that says, you have been forgiven, so you must forgive. How do we balance that out? Luke 17, 3. If someone sins against you seven times in a day and repents, that's the key. Sometimes we just skip over that repentance part. And we think God is just saying, do, let them do whatever they want. And you just go along and two or three can walk together and get along. No, it, it, it doesn't work that way with nobody, including God. God said, repent, then come. Repent, then believe. Nobody lives the way they want to live in sin and can expect or should expect to be with God. He says, repent. So in our relationships, how do we think we can be better than God? People do you wrong. The person who loves you and cares repents and tries to restore what was taken, especially trust, especially trust. Now we have this other side, right? We have those who will not stop lying. Those who say yes, yes, but continue failing to keep their word. For them, there's condemnation. For those who say, no, I won't, but they do it anyway, there waits a day of fiery judgment. Psalm 63 and verse 11. For the mouths of liars will be stopped. There is a price to pay. If the justice and judgment for their deceitfulness hasn't crushed them already, don't worry. The Lord Jesus is coming back to take vengeance on all wickedness. Revelation 21 and verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. But I'm so thankful for the verse before that. Revelation 21 and verse 7. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. The one who conquers is the one who places their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the great conqueror. See, see, without that, I would have been in that first group in verse 8, facing the lake that burns with fire. But because Jesus died for me, I am now more than a conqueror because of him. And because of him, I have won the battle, and now I parade under his banner. In my first year of football as a freshman, we hardly won any games. And I hardly 
played. I barely played. But when we did win, at the end of the game, we lifted up the banner for the Longwood Lions, and I ran under that banner as a winner because I was a part of that team. When Christ comes back and we're raised to meet him in the air, we will celebrate that victory under the banner of Christ because we are a part of his team. We will parade as if we did all the work, but we know he did all the work. So we will lay our crowns at his feet and worship him forever for what he did. How did it happen? Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection happened. After suffering a brutal death on the cross, Jesus conquered death by rising three days later. For all who believe in him, they too will rise and conquer the second death, which is the lake of fire. They will be saved. My question, are you saved? See, the, 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 the exhortation today is, today is not just to uh, speak the truth, but to believe and call on the Lord and be saved. Romans chapter 10, verses 11 to 13, uh, puts it this way, and I'm going to end with this. It says, everyone, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between men. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we know all are not children of God by the Spirit. To call on the name of the Lord is to believe in the name of the Lord. As Jesus said to the Pharisees, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. They belong to their father, the devil. And their will was to do their father's desires. Lord, you know he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Let us not be like that, Lord God. When he spoke, he spoke and he showed his character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And as Jesus said, he is also the father of all liars. Lord, you declared all liars will be in that lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So not only do I pray that everyone in this place will let their yes be yes and their no be no, but even more than that, I pray every soul that is on the way to the lake of fire will turn by faithfully trusting in you and be saved from that torment to come. Amen. Amen.